Well, announcements are a big deal, especially in corporate America. A new product demands this coherent, highly visible, worldwide marketing strategy. These days, it would include a vigorous social media presence to maximize one's influence and one's impact. Many months, millions of dollars are spent trying to maximize the initial launch of products, right? Customer briefings, press conferences. So now imagine some corporate executive wants your PowerPoint presentation on how you plan to announce the coming of God in the flesh for the world's redemption. The most anticipated announcement in history. The announcement that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years. You come in with one slide. You say, we'll send an angel to an obscure virgin Right in an obscure town in the middle of nowhere in northern Israel. And he'll announce it to her, and no one else will know. Your boss says, uh, didn't, didn't John the Baptist get more than that? I mean, he, he had a visitation in the temple in Jerusalem. He was in a city. And his, his, his birth was spread around by friends and neighbors and traveled through the whole hill country of Judea. So you say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll throw in a few illiterate shepherds in, in, in the nearby fields. We'll let them know. Right? They throw you out of the office. On your way out, you say, I'll you, I got one more. I'll get, give me a few magician astrologers from Persia. They'll pick up the clue from a strange star. Right? The door slams behind you. We forget, right, how strange, how stunningly inefficient, right, how ridiculous and incredible and impossible, and, and this is my first Advent pun, how inconceivable, (laughs) how how fragile and haphazard, how fragile and haphazard, (laughs) The whole Christian story can look. The thing looks improbable. You know, the great irony here is that this announcement in our text this morning has become the single most effective and decisive announcement in the history of the world. It's really not even close. I mean, take a look at any map. There's no land where this... Announcement has not gone. There's no religion, there's no ideology, which has so radically impacted the world as this announcement. The foolishness of God, Paul says, is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the might, the power of men. This... And this alone is the annunciation, the annunciation, the announcement.
I want to look at it under the four headings that are in the back inside page of your bulletin. Greeting, gift, giver, and gift bearer. So first, a greeting. So it's Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It tells us that in the sixth month, meaning the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. It's a small town. It's about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's been excavated, right? They've dug stuff out here. Wells and uh, tombs and various structures. What sits up there today is the Church of the Annunciation. And that sits on Byzantine structures that go back at least to the 4th century and probably earlier than that because the earliest Christians built churches commemorating Jesus' childhood in this little tiny town. So there are archaeological remains up there and there's a church sitting up there. And the prophets... The prophets had spoken of Galilee of the Gentiles as the place where the people who sat in darkness would see a great light. Not only that, they said the Messiah would also be called a Nazarene. So both the region, like the county, if you will, Galilee, and the town, Nazareth, both of them marked the fulfillment of prophetic oracles. And the angel comes in private to one Jewish girl named Mary, who the text tells us is a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And this state of being betrothed is much stronger than the modern idea of engagement. It's considered a binding commitment, and breaking the state of being betrothed was considered adultery. So Gabriel comes into the marginalized existence of a Jewish peasant girl. Right into the midst of her hiddenness and her obscurity and her ordinariness. And he makes this stupendous declaration. This is the beginning of the thawing of the world's bleak midwinter. This is the beginning of the dispersal of the world's darkness. Greetings, O favored one, or in some translations, O highly favored one. Hail, one graced of the Lord. The word for hail, or the word for greetings, is the root word for rejoice. That's the first syllables of the angels from heaven about Jesus. Rejoice. Hail, greetings. The word reappears when the angel of the Lord brings those shepherds out there in the fields. Good news of great joy. Same word. Hail, joy. And Luke is drawing on the prophet Zephaniah here. In Zephaniah chapter 3, he says, Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. This is the hour. The hour of fresh joy for the world. The weary world. 
And what's the reason? In Zephaniah for the joy, the prophet tells us, for the Lord is in the midst of thee. The Lord is with you. And that's just what Mary is told here. The Lord is with you. Soon to be in her midst, with her in the most intimate way imaginable. This amounts then to an announcement. It's still a bit cryptic to be sure. But it is an announcement of Mary's singular place in the history of redemption. That's the greeting. The second thing is this gift. Mary is, as verse 29 says, greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern or wondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now, she doesn't appear afraid of the angel primarily, although it's safe to assume this is an unnerving encounter. I mean, the angel will say to her, do not be afraid. So surely this is frightful in some way. But the text says it is the same. It's it's the words, the speech, the greeting that troubles her and that she's trying to figure this out. And quite a bit is revealed about this young girl here. The word wondered, sometimes it's translated tried to discern. It's an accounting term. It means she audited what was happening. So it implies an intense rationality, right? a scrutiny. Mary, if even you know, naturally afraid, is composed. And we know she is someone who ponders and reflects. She is thoughtful. She is theologically oriented, and we will see in a profound way. She has then, right from the beginning, an inner an interior engagement with the word of God. She scrutinizes it. She's one who ponders things and she wants to know what's entailed in this extraordinary announcement. She doesn't act in blind faith. Greatly troubled, she thinks, she questions. And the angel has to reassure her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary has found favor with God, highly favored, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Those two phrases are 100% biblical. This is the same language which is used of Noah when it is said Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And like Noah, Mary's obedience will be instrumental in saving the world. And the content of this favor we get in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now, there are hundreds of prophecies that terminate here, but perhaps most prominent is the prophecy of Isaiah, that a virgin would bear a child. Mary will be the one who will conceive and bear a son. And it's important to see these words to her, they affirm the full humanity of Jesus. So Mary is not simply a conduit. Right? Like in some sort of divine rent-a-womb scheme. 
She's Jesus' real mother. He's flesh of her flesh, bone of her bone. He has her features. He has her DNA. She's not a conduit. She's a mother. And if his full humanity is not taken from her, then he is neither Jewish nor human. And if that is so, then he cannot be who he is called here. Jesus. That is a name which in Hebrew means the Lord is salvation. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us in his account of the Lord's birth, this means he will save his people from their sins. So this one then is the Lord who saves now appearing in human flesh. God not in a man, God not with a man, God as a man. The angel continues, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. This baby will be the promised Davidic king. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Notice that. In addition to being the son of God, he's the son or the offspring of David. All of that stuff we're looking at in 1 Samuel, and then in 2 Samuel, and then in Kings, it all points here. It's one narrative culminating in these events. And a close reader of this text from Luke 1 will hear a half a dozen echoes to the story of Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel. This is the Davidic son, the Davidic king. And remember, David was promised an everlasting dynasty. And in the first century in Palestine, it looked as if the promise had failed. There was no king in Israel after the Babylonian exile in 587 B.C. Now Mary is told that her child will ascend to the everlasting Davidic throne. And verse 33 says he will reign over the house of Jacob, which means he will reign over the church, which is of Jewish stock and origin. The reign, the text says, shall be forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. It's the same language that's built into the Nicene Creed. So this is high favor. Incomparably high favor for this mother. That's the gift. Third, in verse 34, the giver. Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? She doesn't ask whether this will be Or can this be? She asks how. It's a measured question. Again, she's very engaged here. She understands something incredible is being proposed, and she's a truth seeker. And she gets this remarkable response. The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overpower you or overshadow you. Now, right here, a biblical reader should think of the spirit which overshadowed and hovered over the original creation. It's the same idea. All the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the spirit of the Lord was hovering, overshadowing the waters. Why this language of overshadowing? Because the world is about to be recreated. 
through the one who's in Mary's womb. The virgin birth means no human effort, no male virility, no man engagement of any kind, no human blood, no human will, but a divine gift of the overshadowing spirit. The same spirit that hovered over the original creation is pledged to remake the world. The same spirit which hovered over the tabernacle in Israel is evoked as well. And you know what that means? That means Mary's womb is like the Ark of the Covenant because it contains the divine glory and the Word of God. Because of this overshadowing, the child born to her will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, we Protestants, we have a long history of overreacting to Catholic excesses about the Virgin Mary. And this overreaction entails a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We want to say everything about her that can be said, and that is, believe me, quite a lot. This overshadowing confers an unsurpassed dignity on this lowly Jewish virgin. No one, no one, not just no woman, no one, male or female, no CEO, no political leader, no king, no queen, no potentate, no one in any station of life, no shatterer of any glass ceiling has ever been exalted as this woman. There is no dignity, no glory, no honor that has ever been bestowed on any human being that compares with the honor bestowed on this one. She shall be what the fathers of the church called, shockingly, the Theotokos, meaning the God-bearer. The Theotokos. Not, of course, that she gives birth to the Holy Trinity. The point of the title Theotokos is that there is not just a body in Mary's womb. There is a person in her womb. And if you ask the question, who is the person in her womb? The answer is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Thus, the God-bearer, the Theotokos. A dignity conferred on no human being. There is not just a body in Mary's womb. There is a person in her womb. And apparently, to reinforce Mary's faith in the work of the Spirit here, the angel reminds her, you know, your your relative Elizabeth, who was barren, also has conceived in her old age, and she's in her sixth month. It's a little minor miracle that points to Mary's greater miracle. And then the angel says, for no word of God will ever fail. Sometimes this is translated, nothing will be impossible for God. It's highly significant that these words, nothing shall be impossible for God, or the word of God shall never fail, they were spoken by the angel of the Lord to Abraham when a barren Sarah laughed. She laughed at the promise that she would bear a son in her old age. And you know what this does? 
This evokes this whole long history of Israel. You're reminded here that Mary stands then at the end of a long, long line of improbable mothers in Israel. Sarah and Hannah and now Elizabeth. Culminating in that radiant figure in Revelation 12 where there is a pregnant woman in heaven clothed with the radiance of the sun who has the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars on her head. That woman is Israel laboring in pain through the centuries to bring forth the Messiah. That woman is Sarah and is Hannah and is Elizabeth and the exemplar example of that woman. The instance of that woman which is supreme is Mary herself. All the gracious gifts of children to barren women in the whole Old Testament narrative point to this womb of the virgin. So from the beginning, it is clear that the promised seed has to come by pure grace, right? by resurrection, from a barren and ultimately from a virginal womb. Finally, fourth here is the gift bearer, Mary herself, whose faith I've said a bit about already, but it comes into beautiful focus here. And here Mary is worthy of being called the first Christian. And she sets an example of humility and thoughtful obedience. She stands as a kind of sign, a kind of pattern for all future disciples. She says this, in the face of some confusion and dread, I am the Lord's servant, she answers. No is not an option for bond servants. She doesn't say, well, I had different life goals. Can you see if you can find another virgin somewhere up here? Mary stands under the word of God who is about to take residence in her womb. So she submits to the angel's words with what has come to be called, what is now famous as her fiat. Fiat is Latin for let it be. So she says, let it be to me according to your word. Here it's the word which must be fulfilled or engrafted, which must take up residence in her flesh. What she is doing here is she is offering her body, her life, her soul, her future, her all to God. It's an intelligent, willing, radical act of surrender. And that's why she has always been seen as a model of Christian discipleship, as a paradigm. In this, in her whole troubled, wondering, auditing, questioning obedience, she's a model of receptive, responsive faith. She's a model of the freedom of being given over and being bound to God. And we must not overlook, we must not overlook the darkness into which Mary is treading. Her words, be it done to me, according to your word, they contain a premonition of her son's later words in the garden, not as I will, but as thy will. Thy will be done. So this pregnancy, apparently out of wedlock, is going to mean that her already marginalized social standing will be further jeopardized. It's going to put her impending marriage at risk. In fact, Joseph will seek to divorce her. This is a shame and honor culture. 
like Abraham. And if you look ahead to Mary's Magnificat, which I hope to cover here soon in a couple weeks, you'll notice that Mary and Abraham are very much alike, and the parallels are also sharp there, as they are with Mary and Hannah. But like Abraham, she goes out not knowing where she is going. You know, just as blind faith is folly, and Mary doesn't have blind faith, blind faith is folly. So waiting for full clarity is also folly. It is itself irrational. Optimal conditions rarely occur, beloved. Nobody gets to sit around waiting for perfectly full clarity. Mary cuts this way between some sort of blind, knee-jerk faith and the requirement of absolute clarity. She will later find out that a sword will pierce her own soul. That her son will be a sign of contradiction to be spoken against. He will be much more hated than loved in his earthly life. She will find out that he's appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And finally, you know, to make Mary, to make you and I whole, she must see him torn before her very eyes. In the words of one poet, Mary puts it this way. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Those are horrific words for a mother. It's because of this receptivity, this submission to the word, shot through the text, the word which troubled her, the word she wondered about, the word she audited, the word of promise spoken to her at length, the word from God which will not fail, the word of which she says, be it done to me. Because of this engagement, this listening, the early fathers, in what is a profound insight into the mystery of this text, the early fathers said Mary conceived through the ear. She conceived through the ear, through her rational, intelligent trusting of the word. Through the lavish grace of the triune God, the father who promises and speaks through the angel, the Son who descends and is conceived, and the Spirit who hovers over and overshadows. By that grace of God, Mary becomes an example for all of us. She is a picture, and and in this sense, a unique picture of the church. Why is she a unique picture of the church? Well, it's quite simple, and again, we owe this to the early fathers. She alone is pure virgin and fruitful mother. Both images are used of the church in the New Testament. And this relationship between her as example and us, it's wonderfully captured in the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. You can get it in this couplet here. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin. 
enter in, be born in us today. The same gift of God which brought Mary to faith causes Christ to be born in us, for it is Christ in you, in you, Christ resident, housed, carried within your being, which is the hope of glory. Right? The glory of a king whose reign over the house of David has already begun and shall have no end. Praise be to God for Mary's fiat, given by grace. Her example we cherish. Her child, the Son of God, the Savior, the Davidic King, Him we worship. Rejoice then. For in him you also, you also are highly favored. Amen. Amen.